Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. Uh, if you have a Bible, please get ready to open up to 1 Kings chapter 8. And we'll be looking at verses 22 through 53. But will God dwell on earth? It's the central question of the passage. And the deep paradox at the heart of 1 Kings chapter 8. A chapter entailing the details of the dedication of Solomon's temple. As one theologian suggests, however, given the context, one might expect the focus of this chapter to be on sacrifice, or ritual, or priesthood, or even atonement. Surprisingly, the focus falls instead on God's covenant and on the presence of the God of the covenant dwelling among His people through His Word. Dear beloved NCBC Church family, I love it when the Holy Spirit works in such a way to bring us such a timely word, don't you? The relevance of this passage and what we've been lingering on for the past few weeks could not be more needed, more appropriate, more applicable, more encouraging and comforting to our congregation, New Covenant Baptist Church, in our current circumstance of transition. These chapters reminds us that the church is not a building, but a people set apart. That God's people are kept by His enduring Word. That God indeed is with us as He has always been and will be forevermore. Amen? As Christmas season is upon us, what better word is there than to be reminded that our God is not a God who is distant and far away, who can care less about you and me. No, He has made a way for us to dwell with Him, to be one with Him, through the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the Emmanuel God, God with us. That God has not left us abandoned to our own after He ascended, did He? But He sent His indwelling Spirit, to be present with us, our very present help in time of need. And our passage teaches us today how such deep communion with God is possible, how true fellowship is possible within His church. We're continuing our study through First and Second Kings in our series, The King of Kings. And as I've shared for multiple weeks, the Kings is about the short-lived peaceful reign of the United Kingdom of Israel under King Solomon and... Israel's eventual division, downfall, decimation, and exile. But the message of the kings is clear, and its profound lesson still proves powerful to you and me today, to his people. Kings fail, and kingdoms fall, but the word of the Lord stands. Hence what we learned through the kings is that there is much more going on than simply the story of Solomon and the nation of Israel. There is a greater story being told the story of God's salvation plan for us all. And that's why even in our passage this afternoon in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 through 53, in Solomon's prayer at the temple dedication, there are deeper lessons for us. As one commentator says, there is something deeply surprising about this chapter, and in particular about Solomon's long prayer at its heart. And as Charles Spurgeon says, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God, much more is to be seen in Solomon's prayer than may be apparent upon 
the surface. And that's why even though we did a broad overview of chapter 8 last Sunday, we want to look again more closely to these particular verses today, to Solomon's prayer. I shared with you last Sunday, 1 Kings is undoubtedly the high point of the Old Testament. It's that breathtaking moment in history of God's people as the long-awaited temple is completed and is being commissioned. It's a feast of tabernacles, the annual celebration in remembrance of God's provision through the wilderness wanderings, unlike any other. The congregation of the nation of Israel have all assembled together to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David and into the temple, which meant that God's presence would no longer dwell in a temporary tent, but a permanent temple. It was a confirmation of God's covenant with His people for good. As such, the people of God were expectant, weren't they? The priests had consecrated themselves by washing themselves with the waters of the sea of cleansing of the great bronze basin. The Levitical choir and the temple orchestra with harps and lyres and cymbals and trumpets all in one accord praised God for He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. And in the midst of their worship, in the midst of them singing out loud with one voice, revival. There's no guessing, there's no doubting, there's no deprivation of what they all came to witness with their own very eyes. God inhabits the praises of His people. Literally, the glory of the Lord falls and filled the house of the Lord. A thick, dark cloud filled the temple. The event was so awful and awesome at the same time that the priest could no longer stand to minister. All who were present fell prostrate on their faces to worship the true and living God. It was the most extraordinary worship service that anyone would ever participate in up to this point in Israel's history. Yet the point of the passage is not simply that God is glorious. No, He's much more than that but that this glorious God desires to live among His own. This glorious, magnificent God wants to live among His own. That the God of such spectacular greatness desires to be all in with His people. And that's why the emphasis of the passage, the high point of the passage, the weight of the passage, is how communion with God is possible. And we know this is the point because as I shared last Sunday, the chapter is written in a chiastic form. The structure of the passage emphasizes Solomon's prayer found in the passage today, verses 22 through 53, as the central emphasis. We see the chapter, if you look at the chapter, chapter 8, start with the assembly gathered for celebration, and they offer up sacrifices, that's verses 1 through 11, followed by Solomon's blessing, that's verses 12 through 21, and we see the chapter ending in reverse order. Solomon's blessing again in verses 54 through 61. And then sacrifice, the celebration, and the assembly gathered in verses 62 through 66. And again, it is verses 22 through 53, Solomon's prayer, that the passage emphasizes. Well, I believe because it answers for us Solomon's great quandary. The paradox of the passage found in verses 27 through 30. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Because the question for Solomon and for all of Israel and for us today is the lingering question, how can a holy God 
dwell with sinful man. Of course you may know it in your heart as a Christian, but perhaps you also have doubted that a holy God could truly forgive our sins, your sins. That a truly holy, magnificent, spectacular, glorious God can live with you, live in you via His Spirit, even though you are a sinner deserving of wrath and judgment and hell. So in answering that question, how can a holy God dwell with sinful man? From our passage, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 through 53, I want to share with you three lessons Solomon's prayer teaches us. Three lessons Solomon's prayer teaches us. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, who God is. From verses 22 through 30. Who God is, 22 through 30. Point number two, what we need. From verses 31 through 50 what we need. And then point number three, who we are, from verses 51 to 53. Who God is, what we need, who we are. Brothers and sisters, I pray this word will remind you and encourage you anew of the confidence we can have in God because of who He is and who we are in light of Him. I pray this message will motivate you to pray more in the new year, in 2024 as the means of deeper communion and fellowship with Him for your empowering and for your emboldening to live out the gospel and proclaim it to others. Amen? So without further ado, let's turn to our passage found on page 288 and 289 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, I want to encourage you, if you're new especially, please keep your Bibles open and reference it often as I read and preach so you know that this is God's word for you to build you up and grow you in love and in faith in Him. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 and on says this. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hand toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your words be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But... Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they prayed toward this place. And listen in heaven your dwelling place when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven 
and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant them rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in their land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, and do as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to the enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart, and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carry them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people, your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving them ear to whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt. O Lord God. How can the holy God dwell with sinners? Point number one, the first lesson that we can learn from our passage is who is our God. As the reading of our passage may have hinted, outside of the Psalms, this 32-verse prayer is one of the longest recorded prayers in the Old Testament. And matching its length, Solomon's prayers is also that much significant. Solomon's prayer is the key that unlocks the paradox of verses 27 through verse 30. The tension between transcendence his incomparable holiness and set-apartness, and his imminence, his knowability, his perceivability, and his graspability. As one theologian says, Solomon's prayer 
is right at the heart of the scripture's covenant theology. And it makes clear that the temple is not an end in itself, but the servant of a much bigger agenda. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that through Solomon's prayer, God is intending to teach you and me a more significant reality about His covenant. Through Solomon's temple, God purposes to point His people to something much more greater. Namely, that God's covenant faithfulness is the foundation. Listen carefully. God's covenant faithfulness is the foundation of both Solomon's prayer and the temple itself. And so the prayer begins by recounting who this covenant-keeping God is. So look at verses 22 through 25 again, which says this. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, in the presence of all, the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hand toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. We see in verse 22, King Solomon deliberately takes up a position before the altar of the Lord, showing us that prayer is made possible only by the provision of atonement. That access to God is open to us via sacrifice. As burnt offerings were offered up to God by the hundreds, by the thousands, as animals were slaughtered, as blood was shed because of the sinfulness of humans, and because sinful humans cannot approach a holy God otherwise, something had to pay the price, sin had to be atoned, hence the altar. It says, Solomon spread out his hands toward heaven. It was a posture of reverence, humility, and submission. Solomon rightly realized the weightiness of the moment that God intended to manifest his presence in the temple. And Solomon and the people of Israel ought not to haphazardly, nonchalantly, irreverently welcome their most holy God. So let me quickly ask you a question. What is your posture as you worship the Lord our God, as you are hearing His word this moment. Now the words that Solomon prays are directly out of Deuteronomy 4, 39, 7, 9, and 12. Through the words of Deuteronomy, Solomon recalls before the congregation that Yahweh is unlike any other, that God is utterly unique, that God is faithful, that God keeps His covenant with His people. Then Solomon moves straight to the fulfillment of the dynastic covenantal promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, doesn't he? Verse 24 is actually another chiasm, if you notice it, in which the first and second half of the verses mirror each other in reverse order. And the verses serves to emphasize what God is doing. God declared, God spoke with his mouth, and so God has kept and fulfilled his covenant promises. Now as you read verses 25 and 26, it may seem a little bit redundant. Look at those verses again. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me, as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David my father. You see, Solomon prays for what God had already promised. But Solomon, what he's doing is modeling for us 
What is the heart of biblical prayer? Which is simply, again, biblical prayer is asking God to deliver on what He has already promised. Amen? Pastor John Onyechekwa in his book Prayer in the Nine Mark series says it this way, Prayer is calling on God to come through on His promises. Prayer is simply calling on God to come through on His promises. Again, it's so interesting that in these verses, even at the dedication of the temple, the actual focus is not on the temple itself, but on the enduring rule of the Davidic king in accordance with God's promise. May your words be known. May your words be manifest. May your words be shown. May it be shown. May it be known that your word will endure. One commentator observes, It seems that for Solomon, enjoying life with God in the land is contingent upon an obedient Davidic king ruling on the throne. And the temple always pointed to a greater reality. And that's been the lingering question of these early chapters of the kings, hasn't it? Solomon is the chosen king. But is he or is he not the obedient king? In the gravity of the occasion, Solomon wholeheartedly understood the importance of God coming through on his word. And so the king is at pains to point out, even and in this a prayer of dedication, that the temple is a gracious but ultimately an inadequate provision for God the creator of the universe, to dwell in. In other words, Solomon doesn't pray, as long as this temple is pristine, we will be safe and secure. No, that's not what he prays. He prays, God, keep your word that a man will sit on your throne who will walk in your ways. Let your word be confirmed. May it be so as you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Keep your covenant promise. That is the prayer. That is the center of this chapter of the temple dedication. Next in verses 28 through 30, Solomon asks God to listen and to answer the prayers of his people at the temple. Look again at those verses, 28 through 30, which says this, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servants offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. As you read those verses, it might stick out to you. Uh, That might be a little bit confusing in light of what I've been saying. The strange phrase that keeps coming up in those verses, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer of your servant offers toward this place. Okay, so I've been telling you that the temple is not so significant, but why does it seem ironically that in these verses, there's a lot of emphasis in looking to this house, looking to this temple, looking toward the temple. So what is the connection between the temple and prayer? Well, these verses should not be interpreted as a superstitious view of the temple. In fact, that's the very sin that the Israelites commit. They rely too heavily, way too much, of their security on the temple itself. And in previous sermons, I've pointed out why that was their sin, that was their flaw. But rather, the temple was shown as a figurative way of describing prayer based on God's record and 
commitment to keeping his promises. The temple was a visual reminder, a visual manifestation that God is faithful to keep his word. You see, again, the purpose of the temple was to evidence God keeping his promises to his people. The temple itself was a physical demonstration of the fact that God hears and answers our prayers when we ask him to continue to keep his covenant promises. You see what I mean? There is so much meaning in the temple, a greater reality. We're going to tie up more of what this means in the next point, but I want us to consider some application before we move on. Brothers and sisters, I think an apparent application, implication of these verses is to ask us and to examine our hearts. How is our prayer lives? How is our prayer lives? How is your prayer life? As J.C. Ryle says, a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. A habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. So brothers and sisters, ask yourself, what does your prayer life indicate about the genuineness of Christian faith? of your Christian faith. What does your prayer life indicate about the genuineness about your Christian faith? I know many of us struggle in our prayers. Could it be because you have forgotten that prayer is first and foremost not about ourselves, not about getting what we want, but a means to remember who God is, a means to give credit to whom credit is due. If you don't realize who it is you are praying to, you're going to have a really hard time trusting yourselves onto Him, casting your burdens, lifting up your petitions to Him, because if you don't recognize who He is for who He is, you would be believing in such an insignificant, small God. But is this your God? A small and insignificant God? No. Our passage reminds us our God is unlike any other. Our God is faithful in steadfast love. Our God is a God who keeps covenant to redeem and restore and sustain His people to the end. Amen? He is gloriously transcendent, yet He is imminent, close and near to us. He is the most magnificent and glorious and beautiful and matchless God, yet He desires to dwell with us, to hear us, to speak to us, to act on our behalf. This is our God. Hallelujah. Yet even knowing who He is, we still struggle in prayer, in communion with God. We are not intimate with God oftentimes. And that's because there is such a huge chasm between us and God. He is awesome, yet we are so lowly and broken, aren't we? Which is the reason why this is the emphasis of the passage. As the Lord desires to dwell with us, sin is the chasm. Sin is the problem. And therefore... Solomon, the king, God's chosen king, intercedes for us on our behalf. So how can a holy God dwell with sinners? Point number two, what we need from verses 31 through 50. Since God is one who hears the prayers of his people and forgives, in verses 31 through 50, Solomon elaborates on seven situations in which such prayer might take place. In short, in summary, simply speaking, Solomon's prayer is everything that anyone could ever want in prayer. A sevenfold perfection of intercession. It was to highlight both the severity of our sin and the great mercy of God. We see in Solomon's prayer that one of the main purposes of the temple is, of course, forgiveness. People could come 
and be forgiven by lifting up their prayers and their worship and their sacrifices unto the Lord. The purpose of the temple is indeed, in fact, forgiveness. God's visible presence represented by the temple is the ultimate guarantor of our corporate forgiveness that he would bring upon on our behalf. God's forgiveness is complete and perfect as portrayed by these seven petitions. What we see in these prayers is how God forgives our sins. So, the first petition in verses 31 and 32 is a prayer for justice. If you look at verse 32 in particular, Solomon calls on God to hear in heaven and act and judge his servants. Solomon says, condemn the guilty and vindicate the righteous. Solomon, what he was doing was acknowledging God as the righteous judge. In verses 33 and 34 is a prayer for rescue. Solomon's prayer acknowledged that sometimes defeat is warranted by God. So brothers and sisters, for anybody who liked a boy or a girl and were rejected, defeat is warranted by God. For any brother or sister here rejected by a job you applied for, defeat, rejection is warranted by God towards His people, listen carefully, because of sin. But if God's people turn again, to him and acknowledge his name and pray and plead in this house, Solomon pleads for God to hear and forgive their sins and bring them again to the land of their fathers. You see, Solomon understood that God is one who sovereignly punishes and also rescues. In verses 35 through 36 is a prayer for provision. Sometimes sin of God's people causes problems in the land we live in, drought, is exemplified as one punishment in which God will use to teach us. Yet, if God's people pray toward His house and acknowledge His name and turn from their sins, God will provide instruction. He will teach us through it. Restoration, He will heal us in it and provide the material need, precipitation, rain. Hallelujah. It's been raining these two weeks. A little bit dreary outside, but in our hearts, much joy and excitement and hope. Amen? At least I hope. In verses 37 through 40 is a prayer for deliverance. This prayer covers a whole lot of ground. Famine, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts, caterpillar, enemies, besieging the land, plagues, sicknesses that we prayed for. Of course, we who live under the new covenant shouldn't always make one-to-one correlation between disasters that happen, bad things that happen in the world and God's judgment. Our nation isn't in a covenant the way the nation of Israel was. Yet the point of these prayers is this. God delights to hear the prayers of His people in every situation, in every circumstance. Amen? As James 5, 16 through 18 says, the prayers of a righteous person, the one who goes in the name of Jesus and truly desires for His righteous will to be done, the prayers of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. And it says, continues on in verse 17, Elijah was a human being just as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again. And the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Amen? Now, I'm not comparing myself to Elijah by any means. But I kid you not. When it was uh, Susan and Josh's wedding, it was raining the day before really, really hard. And it looked like it was going to rain the next day. I prayed. (laughs) And for that period, it did not rain. Yes? Can I get a witness? Amen. Here in these verses, unlike before, there is a corporate nature. Verse 38. 
whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel. The point of this petition is that as God knows the hearts of all mankind, He will deliver. He will hear and forgive and act and render to each whose heart He knows accordingly that they might fear God all their days. Do you know what this means? As the people of God pray in faith, and when He hears and acts, how do we respond? Wow, what an amazing, what a mighty God we serve. If you don't pray, if you don't earnestly plead the Lord this way, you don't know the amazing joy and the amazing awesomeness that we get to experience in answered prayer. Amen? Amen. Verses 41 through 43 is a prayer for outsiders. Now this specific petition may be shocking initially since Solomon's prayer is being offered at the dedication of Israel's temple. But as our passage shows, the temple has a much grander purpose, doesn't it? Than just the prosperity of the nation of Israel. The temple is actually a prophetic sign of what is to come and what God's house always intended to be from when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis that Israel will be a blessing to all the nations. Furthermore, Isaiah uh, 2.3 and 56.7 prophecies and Mark 11.17 confirms that the house of Yahweh will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So I loved it when earlier on I was supposed to come and pray, but I loved hearing you praying out loud and the prayers of God's people being lifted up. Because look, not Rosa Parks, the building, not Twinburg Community Church, the building, not Seven Locks Church, the building, but the people gathered together. We are the house of God. We are the house of prayer. May it be so forever. In addition, Solomon's petition here for the outsiders who call on the name of the Lord and comes and prays toward this house, it says that God will hear from heaven and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. This is an amazing reality, brothers and sisters. The outsider will have the same privilege as the insider, as Israel, when he calls on God in prayer. In order that all the peoples of the earth will know the name of the Lord and fear Him. As do the people of Israel. That they may know that this house I have built is called, is purposed by your name. Brothers and sisters, are you so glad that God has answered Solomon's prayer? That most of us here who are on the outside have been welcomed in to call on Him for rescue, for us to know His name and His house? What a privilege. What a joy. What a hope that we have that is tangible and real. I look out to you and see that we are all outsiders who have been called by His name to His house. Hallelujah. In verse 44 and 45 is a prayer for victory. Unlike the previous petition about war, this petition is specifically about victory for God's cause, for God's purpose. Finally, in verses 46 through 50, a prayer for restoration. This is a worst case scenario as we read. The people of God are going into exile because of Yet if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, then God will hear and maintain their cause and forgive them. Brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is, did you know that most of these situations Solomon describes actually occurs in the years ahead to Israel? The dispute between Ahab and Naboth in 1 Kings 21, in 1 Kings 11:14 and 23 and 25, we will see Israel defeated by an enemy. 
In 1 Kings 17.1, there will be a drought in the land in Israel. In 1 Kings 18.2 and 2 Kings 4.28, there will be a famine in the land as Solomon prayed. A siege in 2 Kings 6.24 and 25. A visit from a foreigner in 1 Kings 10.1. Battles in 1 Kings 21 through 30. And finally, we know how this book ends. An exile to foreign lands in 2 Kings 17, 6 and 24, 14 through 16. You see what Solomon was praying about? Solomon's seven situations, in fact, point to the entire history of the people of Israel to be recounted in the books of the 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Solomon was praying in advance about every situation that his people would face in the days and years ahead. Then again, what was the purpose of the temple? What is the lesson of Solomon's prayer? That a holy God desires to dwell among his people. That he will forgive their sins if they would repent and turn to him and call on him. No matter what situation, no matter what circumstance, if my people will call on him, he will hear, he will forgive, and he will act. The purpose of the temple, brothers and sisters, is that we would not rely on man-made temples. That we would not rely on human kings and human presidents. Brothers and sisters, the prayer of Solomon points us to the need for a greater temple and a greater king. A temple not built by human hands. A king not marred in sin and flesh. Peace for man belongs not in Solomon, the Shalom king, but in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the obedient King who is the Prince of Peace. As one theologian says, this is what true praying now is. Asking in the name of Jesus Christ. This is more than a form of words added to the end of prayer in Jesus' name. No, we come to the Father by coming not to the house that Solomon built, but in God's name and Jesus' name. We call on the name of the Lord by calling on Jesus. We receive forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. We acknowledge His name, believe in His name. We are hated, persecuted, dishonored, and insulted on the account of His name. And yet we hold fast to His name, don't we? Refusing to deny His name. The name of Jesus is the name above every name. Hallelujah. The remarkable promises we hear from Jesus concerning asking in His name are the fulfillment of what Solomon exactly, specifically prayed for. The possibility of this kind of praying is actually astonishing. Think about it. We are talking about request uttered by mere sinful humans like us being heard by the Almighty God and being answered and being granted. This is the privilege and the power we have in Jesus' name through prayer. The question again, brothers and sisters, but will God indeed dwell with man? The answer is a resounding yes and amen. He has come to die on the cross. He rose again that we might live again in Him in the newness of life for all eternity, that our sins may be forgiven once and for all, wiped clean as far as east is to the west. Our sins are remembered no more. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear because only in Jesus Christ, all of Solomon's prayers are satisfied to unleash the promises of God for us. Guests and visitors, if there is anyone here who do not know Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords, this word is an invitation for you, no matter what sin stands in your way. 
if you would repent of your sins. That means to turn from trusting in yourself or trusting in the things of this world. If you would believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. If you would trust in Him with your whole life today, right now, this moment, and tomorrow, and the next day, you will be saved because the Bible says, promises, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. No doubt about it. It's not upon you. It's not reliant on your works. It's reliant on the promises of God. Whoever will call on me will be saved. He is faithful to forgive you today, this very moment. Scripture is clear. John 14.6 Jesus is the way. I am the way. The truth and the life. There is no other way to God. No other way to heaven. No other way to true lasting peace and security. No other way for true hope and true life. Friend, if you reject Him, it means you are willing to accept the consequences of your own sin. Rejecting Him means your certain fate is to be held responsible for the punishment that will come in endless torment. Because you rejected His mercy. Because you rejected His Son. So we plead with you. If you do not know Jesus as the Lord of your life, the King of kings and Lord of lords, call on Jesus today, right now, this moment. He is faithful to forgive you of all your sins. His forgiveness is what you need. Not more money, not more friends. His forgiveness is exactly what you need and the reason why you are sitting in this place if you're not a believer. His forgiveness is what all of us needed and it is yours. It is ours if you would believe and trust in Him. Third and finally, how can a holy God dwell with sinful man? Because third and finally, who we are, who we are. Look with me to verse 51. Again, it says this. For they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus is the greater Solomon and the greater temple, our identity as his people and his heritage has been eternally secured. Because Jesus is the King of kings, we who are outsiders have been delivered in the new and greater exodus from the bondage of sin and death. Colossians 1.13 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Look at verse 52. It says, Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call on you. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus is our great intercessor and mediator, because He died on the cross for our sins, Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us this very moment. And Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, He is able to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. And Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. We have open access through prayer because of Christ. Hallelujah. Verse 53 says, for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Simply, Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, For he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Brothers and sisters, I know this is a truth that we all know as Christians, but we often forget. 
You cannot do anything to work yourself out of salvation because you did nothing to earn it. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you to be His child, to be a people for Himself. We are His. We are heard and loved. We are chosen. This is who we are. What a mighty King we serve. What a glorious truth that have been made known to us. What a glorious gospel we get to proclaim in this season of Christmas while the world celebrates all sorts of weird things. We celebrate the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We understand the reason for the season that Jesus Christ has come to die and has risen again for our forgiveness. Let us worship Him as He truly is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, a God who has forgiven us for all of our sin, once and for all, sins of the past, present, and future, and we can stand boldly and confidently with hands lifted up, worshiping Him from this day till forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much that Christ has made intercession for our behalf. That, Father, through the lips of Solomon, you predicted every single situation that your people would fall into because of our sin. Father, our sins did not surprise you, as Adam and Eve's sin did not surprise God. Father, every sin has been atoned for. Father, not because of our merit, because God has sent Christ to be our salvation, to be the mediator, to be the perfect sacrifice, to be the propitiation for our sin. Father, what a mighty forgiveness we have experienced in the cleansing flow of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Father, what a mighty news that we know, the glorious gospel of Christ in the coming of your Son. Help us to worship you like it. Help us to pray to you like it in deep, intimate communion with you in prayer, lifting up petitions and pleas and prayers because you are a God who hears and forgives and acts. Help us to be such a people who have complete confidence in you in the year ahead, in 2024. Father, help us to not be focused on our situations and our circumstances, but help us to look to you. And Father, accomplish your will and your purposes for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.